wasn't exactly what we planned. Um, we planned to have our men's retreat again this year, and um, uh, we found out that God had other plans. And so we submitted to those plans, and just um, I hope it's been a blessing to you as it's been to me. Now, tonight, I, you know, I had some stuff prepared for camp, and then I kind of thought, well, I'm going to do something different. It's a, a mixed crowd, but God kind of put this passage on my mind, and um, it's always not, well, it's always a, it's always a, they say, I should say, that you shouldn't lead with a negative, right? Like, you shouldn't say, like, give the warning. Uh, and I, I guess what I'm hesitating is I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to speak to you about. Um, but um, Christ never avoided the hard words. In fact, it, it seems as though every time Jesus got a crowd together, he would say something obnoxious. And, and I don't say that what God says is obnoxious, but if you were listening to him, he would say things, you know. And he'd have a, he had a big crowd, and he turned around to him, and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And um, the crowd disappeared. Um, now, I think it's important for us to remember, because in the, in the Western world... Uh, we're fascinated by the crowd. And what happens, it seems to me, is that once your focus is getting a crowd, that you begin to make small compromises about what life is really all about. And Jesus wasn't impressed with the crowd. Now, and so I thought, you know, Sunday night, and as I prayed, I just really felt like this is where I needed to go. And I knew that you would know that I, I love you and I'm not angry at anybody, but I think... It's time that we, we let God speak some hard words to us. When we live from Christ, so one of the things that I've been trying to convey over the last few days it, is that it's not what we do for God. Usually we set out to do something for God and we mess the whole thing up. But it's what we allow God to do through us. That, that he's the initiator of all things, and we're the responders. So as we yield to his indwelling life, and it's not our sufficiency, another topic that we looked at, it's not our sufficiency, but it's his sufficiency. It's not what we can do, it's what he can do. And we're simply yielded vessels. But the only way that we're ever going to come to the place where we really experience Christ as life is when we yield or fully surrender ourselves to a life of obedience. Um, obedience isn't a scary thing because when Christ gave his life to us that he might live and dwell within us, he became our obedience. You see, obedience, if you tell a two-year-old or a four-year-old and you say, well, this, you, you got to obey, instantly there's a state of panic, right? Because he's sitting there going, how can I do it? Right? He has the force pulling him away. And sometimes I, I meet Christians and they think about obedience and they think, oh, uh, that's like a form of legalism. But here's what I want you to understand. The life of obedience or the life of surrender is all about Christ and him being your obedience through you. You see, you have no fear. Because when you yield to the indwelling life of God, he is your obedience. He fulfills all. I think the church in the Western world has totally missed the point, And we've made Christianity into a business. Now, I got this from a pastor friend of mine, Frank Friedman in Baton Rouge. And he sends me stuff every once in a while. We batter it around. He says, Christianity started in Palestine as a fellowship. It moved to Greece and became a philosophy. It moved to Italy and became an institution. It moved to Europe and became a culture. It came to America and became an enterprise. Isn't that what's happened? America, we've made it big business. You see, friends, but what I want you to see tonight, my prayer is that, that Christ will lead you to the place that we have been called to a life of discipleship 
and to make disciples. Disciples are people who live in community as the visible body of Christ, and we must come to the place where we confess or profess that that body is not for sale. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Father, I thank you that you loved us so richly and deeply that you sent your son to redeem us and to make us your dwelling place. Lord, I, I just pray that you'd have complete liberty to speak through your servant and to the hearts of your beloved. And Father, that we would let you have your way in us and through us. Father, reveal to us where we've sold out. And um, let us come to the place of unconditional and absolute surrender. That we might live out true discipleship, authentic discipleship. And Lord, let the... Let your spirit just draw us and convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. He says, if any man come to me, and he, an interesting thing here is, is that the call to us, the first thing I want to share with you is that the call to discipleship assumes the preeminence of Christ. Now, what does it mean for Christ to be preeminent? Now, if we go to Philippians, he talks about it. But to, to be preeminent means to be first or the first of all priorities. And I think when, when I talk to people, and I'm, t I'm kind of picking on the American church because that's what I know best, as opposed to what I, I experience in a more organic uh, situation in, in Asia is that, is that is that we in the West we kind of have turned Christianity into something it was never intended to be, and and we we think that if you ask the average American is Christ preeminent? I mean, or or you ask him another question and say is Jesus Lord of your life? And most of them are like, oh well, yeah, sure. And I'm not going to do it tonight, like ask you to raise your hand for Jesus is Lord of your life. But here's the reality of it. In, in the vast majority of what we call Christians in America, Jesus isn't Lord at all. I mean, he's Lord, don't get me wrong. And he's not Lord because you make him Lord. He's Lord whether you re enter into that lordship or not. Right? Because sometimes we make that, communicate that thing. Well, I made Jesus Lord. No, you didn't make him Lord. The Father of all makes him Lord, but there's a place where we come to enter into his Lordship, where we bow ourselves down, and the Lord is the one who reigns. And we were singing a, a couple of songs ago, and I was thinking about those words. I was like, wow. Because we were talking about his Lordship, and he was the Master. You see... We, we've completely lost the idea that we enter into our Christianity as servants of God. Because what does a servant do? The will of the master. But what do most of us do? Our own will. We do, if we, and, and right, because we're in church, we can be honest, right? Because you're not really giving me a lot of affirmation here. <laughs> you know, if we can't be honest in church, where we can be honest. And if, we, and if we're not honest, and I tell people this all the time, if we're not honest with where we are, we are hopeless because God cannot move us. And this is the problem, is that we're not honest with ourselves. We go around comparing ourselves one to another. So, you know, we good Bible-believing Baptists will we'll compare ourselves to some other group and say, well, yeah, man, they don't even have church on Sunday night. 
So we're much better than, and we find ways of comparing ourselves to one another so that we come out looking better. And all we're really looking for is to come out above average. But Jesus calls us to a life where he is the Lord. He's the one who reigns over all that we do, all that we spend our time and resources to recognize that we are not our own, that he is the owner of all that we are. And his lordship or his preeminence means his kingdom first. His desires first. His his kingdom, his will, his purposes is the priority of our life, the foundation for what we call life. But if we're honest, really, it's not so much that way. But how does this all begin? And that's why I hit this morning. Now, Now, this morning I talked to you about the love of Christ constraineth us. What is the motive for this? It's the love of Christ. It's not about guilt and, and condemnation. But he's just saying, that he's saying we need to come to the place where we're people who are overwhelmed by his love. He demonstrates his love for us by giving his life for us. His love for us, all that he has done on our behalf, compels us to a life of devotion. In the West, we look to Jesus, not as our master and our Lord, but as our eternal fire insurance. And I see people do this all the time. Listen, I prayed the prayer, and I'm not going to hell. But I have every intention of doing just what I want. And that, my friend, is to miss the whole point. It's a wonderful thing to know that your sins have been forgiven. And if you don't know it, man, you need to know it. But it's just a small part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would propose to you that this forgiveness, this all-encompassing forgiveness that we receive at the cross was simply elementary in order that we could be in relationship with the Creator. You see, why did Jesus take away our sin? So that he could live in us. But we've focused on this one thing and made the whole Christian life about knowing that we're forgiven. And all about us and our forgiveness, forgetting that we have been forgiven. We've become the sanctuary of God so that he could live in us for the divine purpose of expressing or manifesting his life about us. But do you see what happens when we get it about Jesus died on the cross so he could live in me? And Jesus lives in me. And that's good news. But it's the beginning of the story. It's the beginning of the journey. He's saying to you and I, listen, I live in you for purpose. And your life will never experience the purpose of God as long as you're looking for it in other things. You see, it seems like it's all about what Jesus is going to do for us. Now, I joke around because I'm, I'm not really a tech-savvy person, but I, I really am involved in it more than I realize because um, my, my kids got me, like, showed me how to get podcasts. And I'm really not even sure what that means. But I know that, that when I plug my little... Uh, whatever the I thing is in to the computer, there's a cord and it's really nice because you just plug it into the cord and if your computer's on, it, it opens the programs that need to be done. You don't doesn't wait for me to do it. It just does it and then it automatically updates and it like syn- synchronizes, right? And then I get these messages from different people on my little I, iPod and... <clears throat> 
And uh, I can also put my iPhone on there, and, um, <clears throat> and, and I can listen to sermons. And I've listened to things because I'll be in the car or going places, or I've spent a lot of time on airplanes, and I'll listen to stuff. And this is the amazing thing to me that, that, that's out there. Most, I would say, the, the majority that I understand, and this is not scientific, just what I see out there, it's all about how God is going to make your life better. This week, we're having a starting a new series, The Modern American Family. Next time, five steps for better communication in your marriage. Which is, if you want, I could tell you in one. <laughs> See me afterwards. <laughs> right? The, the men, shut up and listen. You know, whatever. I don't know, you know. <laughs> Turn the TV off. Whatever, you know. And it's... Um, Eight principles for, and every week or two or three things that if you do this, Jesus will make your life better. In fact, only in America could we come up with a whole system of what we call the prosperity gospel. Where Jesus, if you will just send your money to the right person, (laughs) will make you rich. He'll make your hair grow back. No, he won't. (laughs) Right? Only in America. You see, the reality is, is that for most of us, Jesus is not even prominent in our lives, let alone preeminent. We have too many other lovers and too many other priorities. Our sports, our pleasure, our entertainment, our goals all come first and it is reflected in the way that we serve and in how we give. You see, uh, I was talking to a guy and and, um, long story, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but... uh, He's kind of like one of these people that comes to church once a month if he needs it or not. And, uh, but he's also this kind of person who complains because he has, he has several daughters and, and all of the daughters were involved in sports. And so he missed church most of the time so they could be involved in sports. And then when his daughters go to college, then they don't want to have anything to do with God. It's not a priority in their lives. Then he complains, well, my kids don't have anything to do with God. And so being the patient, kind, and gentle person that I am for the whole of five minutes, I finally said, listen, you can do whatever you want to do. You're not giving an account to me. I won't be on the throne when you get there. But why don't you just face it? Jesus is not preeminent in your life. He's not the Lord of your life. And he, you have other lovers. <gasps> I love Jesus. I said, I didn't say you didn't love Jesus. I said, you just have a lot of other lovers. Now, I've said this in this church before. You know, Inevitably, when I talk like this, someone will say... You were stepping all over my toes tonight. And I always say, isn't it just like us to miss the point? I was trying to slay you. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, I'm not worried so much about the people who didn't come tonight. I'm worried that you will be comparing yourselves to the people who didn't come tonight and never enter into the actual lordship of Christ yourself. You'll never enter into the joy of knowing what it is for Christ to be the preeminent, the priority of life. You see, this is what we do. See, even those of us who who are faithful in our tithing, what we'll do is say, see, I'm even tithing. But let me ask you this. If God is Lord of your life, then is everything you have your, his or his, yours or his? So I had this 
my son is in financial services, and, you know, and financial service advisors, they, they make money. They take a percentage of what they make you or what, how they trade or what, something like that. And I asked him one time, trying to teach him a life lesson, I said, well, you know, son, how would it be if you took 90% of the profits and you gave your clients 10%? How would they feel about it? Like, well, dad, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't fly. And, you know, this is the curse of being a preacher's kid, right? And I'm like, well, how do you think God feels about it? You see, we get all, you get all, I say we, you get all worked up about God's, you know, giving a tithe. And, and I tell people, listen, I don't even do that anymore. I think that's just for the elementary basic Christian, the baby Christian. But what if God, who owns all that you have, wanted you to live on 10 and give 90? Amen, that's good, preacher. Stay there for a while, work that one over. All right, okay, I will. Thank you for that encouragement. Now, I'm not telling you what God wants you to give. I'm not here to tell anybody what God wants them to do. I don't get paid that much. That's not on me. But what I'm trying to entice you to is to a different paradigm, a different way of thinking, a lifestyle where Christ and his kingdom is actually the first priority for all that you do. Where you come to the place and say, Lord, here's what we have what do you, that you've entrusted to our care. What do you want to do through me? Instead of putting our sports and our pleasure and our entertainment and all of our goals, even our retirement account first, but to put him and his kingdom first. To be a disciple is to confess that Jesus is Lord and master over all. It is to truly enter into a real, genuine, authentic relationship with him where he speaks into your life and you respond. Not for what he's going to do for you. This is where America gets it all wrong. It's what he's going to do for me. Listen, not for what he's going to do for you, but what he desires to do through you. The call to discipleship demands that we love him more than any other relationship. Jesus didn't shy away from using tough language. To be a disciple is to be one who is so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus that we love Jesus as the priority of life. It isn't that we are the initiators of the relationship. It is simply what we talked about this morning, that we are the responders in the relationship. It's you being so overwhelmed by this God who loves you in such an incredible and fulfilling way that all you can do is respond in love to him. You think... It would probably be completely unreasonable what we're talking about if we hadn't been hopelessly lost when Jesus rescued us with his own life. But isn't that part of the problem? We forgot how bad we messed up ourselves before Jesus entered in. Why is it that we love so many others, so many other things? I think we've forgotten how desperate we were and and all that he has done for us. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God, who is love, isn't calling us to hate anyone in the sense that we usually use that word. What did he tell us in Matthew? But to love our enemies. But when Christ is preeminent in our lives, when Christ is the priority of our lives, then father, mother, brother, sister, friends, co-workers will not be our priority. (laughs) And his kingdom first in our lives will often be misunderstood as hating them. In a way, when Christ is preeminent, we have a certain distaste 
for anything that would draw us away from what he desires to do in and through us because we know that's where true fulfillment is. Mark chapter 12 verse 33 lays out the foundation of what all the commandments were and he says and to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices i think what jesus was communicating to to the, 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 his people was that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be overwhelmed by his love for us that we can only love him back. It all begins with him and we respond to his love with surrender that allows him to lo- love and his love to flow through us, flow through us toward God and others. You see, when we're overwhelmed by that love, then we manifest that love. And this is where the, the church misses it. And pastor said something, I don't remember when it was, but he talked about we've been really good at judging people. But what did Jesus say? He said, you and I, friends, he said, he said, he said to, you, to us, he said, they, the unbelieving world, the unbelievers, those people out there looking in, they will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. And we must really be willing to face the reality is that the unbelieving world looking in at the evangelical and fundamental world is not finding love. Not even love for them. They aren't seeing us love each other. Because we're so filled with our own self-righteousness and self-righteousness is just another form of self-love. And we're in love with ourselves. That's why we put people, men, in the forefront of all that we're doing. That's why we have hero worship. I remember, this is many years ago, but it it always shocked me. I was living in, I can't remember if I was in Thailand or Vietnam. Probably was in Vietnam. I get this letter from someone, and it's like, here's this five-page questionnaire. I want you to fill it out to decide if we're going to be able to support you after all these years. And one of the questions was, who is your hero? And then there was a little note under it. Only a current person or a, you know, a living person. Well, my wife's my hero. Anyway. Why do we do that? Not because we're loving, but because in many respects we have become Pharisees. We're we're just modern day Pharisees. And what did the Pharisees do? They walked around making sure nobody did it wrong. In fact, they killed Jesus for job security. Anyways, I better get moving. It's only... It it all begins with him. We are the responders. We surrender. We allow him to love, his love to flow through us toward God and others. And it's only the spirit of God within us that can stir up or produce the kind of love that he speaks of here. You see, in and of yourself, you have not the capacity to love God with all of your being. You can't do it. But why did he, when you receive Christ and you enter into the cross, he crucifies that old man so he can sanctify your spirit and plant his life in there so the love of the spirit of God can flow through you to love the father and his kingdom and his purposes. But to friends, to love him preeminently is to forsake all other loves that originate outside of him. Be overwhelmed by his love and allow him to transform your heart and let a heart of gratitude love him with all your being. 
Our hearts full of love for him can't help but express that love to others. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I'm pretty sure you won't see that on any billboards in front of churches. Why? Because the, 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 the majority of churches are geared in this world system. Let's, let's look at another encouraging verse. James 4.4. 4. James also had problems communicating what is on his mind. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever there will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He didn't pull any punches at all, did he? Why does he use such terminology? See, this is why. Paul speaks to the church and he says, I have betrothed you. I have brought you into an engagement with Jesus. You see, we go around talking about, oh, well, we're part of the bride of Christ. No, wait a second. You've been engaged to Jesus. So, what do you call a girl who's engaged to a man who has multiple lovers? Not a prime candidate for marriage. She's a prostitute. And the church, in many respects, has whored herself. You see, this is the problem. Like, we'll go through the book of Revelation. We're trying to figure out if the Catholic Church is the great whore of Babylon. I wouldn't give it too much worry. I'd be more worried about what we have done to it. We are called to be his disciples as our master and Lord. We certainly live in the world, but are not of the world. But what we must under France... Understand, friends, the world system, the world system is a system of doing things independent of God. A self-centered, self-sufficient world. The world is a seductress that will blind you to her destructive ways. She will seduce you with pleasures and possessions, but rob you of joy and true life in him. And so we must pray, Lord, open our eyes. To see the lies of the world. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus the priority of your love? Now, I remember a time, and and, um, I don't remember how far back it was. It was a number of years ago. And um, my wife and I, we were having a passionate discussion. <laughs> and a passion, the reason we called it a passionate discussion was because I heard this preacher one time saying he said he'd been married all these years. He had never once had an argument with his wife. So I said, well, we can do that. We'll just redefine argument. <laughs> So we had passionate discussions. <laughs> and you know, if you've been married for any number of time, it happens, right? Or is it just unique to me? Because some of you are looking at me like, I've never really had an argument. <laughs> well, not while you were awake, but <laughs> uh, we're having this thing. And, and, and the reality was, this is what the, the chief complaint was, <clears throat> as I understand it and remember it, was... That, and, and this is what she did. To Vanessa, my sweet wife, she blurts out, 
You're just giving me the leftovers. And I'm like, leftovers are good. Right? I mean, my favorite is leftover meatloaf. I don't know why, but I love it. Like, you get the meatloaf and you heat it up with a couple fried eggs for breakfast or for lunch, whole wheat grain toast with little mayonnaise and some ketchup and meatloaf on it. (laughs) But like usual, I was missing her point. And what had happened was, was I was at that period in my life so, just the way I interpreted my training was so that if I just did enough for God, then God would be happy with me. He would like me. And so I was doing all this stuff and life was all about balance and everything was ministry first and, and everything else followed in whatever time was left. And she finally had all she could take and said, you're just giving me the leftovers. And God began to reveal to me as I began to understand my identity in Christ and that he loved me and accepted me whether I did anything for him or not was that my life could come back into balance. That his will was perfectly in balance. But this is what I was wondering as that story came to me. Because like, does this story have a purpose? They don't have to. But this one does. Are you just giving Jesus your leftovers? Like, how do you decide what you're going to give on Sunday? Do you just give him your leftovers? How do you decide how you're going to respond to his prompting to be involved in a ministry? Do you just give him your leftovers? You see, if Jesus is just getting your leftovers, I think it's safe to say that he's not preeminent. Amen. That was good. Most of us are just giving Jesus the leftovers of our time and our treasure. The call to discipleship puts love for Christ above our own desires. We live in a very narcissistic culture. We have an entitlement mentality that is really all about what we desire. It is true that St. Augustine said, Love God and do as you please. It's a profound quote. And what we have done is just cut off the first part and just do as we please please. But the heart that's overwhelmed with God and in love with God has no danger because he changes our desires. We don't have to live by a set of rules and regulations or standards because we have the spirit of God in us. But he's saying, will you even listen to me? Are you putting your own plans and your own desires first? I think we fear if we surrender our all to him, we won't have any fun and we'll be miserable. Because we have a distorted view of God. But you know, the thing about God is that God only desires our best. You know, when you're a kid... And, and even into your teen years, you know, and I know that, that if you're in your teen years, that it might be hard to grasp. Because in your teen years, sometimes you think, well, I want to do this, and my parents are too controlling, and, you know. And you kind of get this idea that they lay up at night trying to figure out how they can torment you. And it's true. <laughs> they do. Not really. You know, I I remember one time with one of my daughters, because who knows, this could be on the internet at some point. She knows who she is. Uh, I was, she was making some choices that I thought were unwise, and, and not, not necessarily bad things, just not good choices. And I said, sweetie, I love you. 
And God has given me a responsibility to protect you. And what I'm doing, I'm doing to protect you because I love you. And she did, like any, I don't remember, 13, 14, 15-year-old, puts her hands on her hips. Well, what if I don't want to be protected? (laughs) Well, we're considering a convent. Like I always said to my children, was it really doesn't matter what you want. <laughs> right? My other favorite one from a teenager was, I am an adult. Don't treat me like a child. To which I responded, adults pay their own bills. <laughs> that was free, no charge. The reality is that we are some of the richest people in the world, full of possessions and pleasures, and still some of the most unhappy people in the world. God's call to discipleship is a call to love him more than our own lives. For there we experience true fulfillment and joy. So likewise, whoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You see, friends, we've kind of created this thing where we give God a tip and we control the rest. But he's saying that's not discipleship. Discipleship is a total abandonment, a total surrender to the Lordship where he's the master over our lives, where we submit our wisdom For him who is wisdom for us. The rich young ruler came to Jesus looking to justify himself with his wealth. And Jesus told him, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come after me. And he was distressed. He was very sad because he had much. It grieved him because his possessions owned him. His life was full of covetousness. I don't think God is nearly as concerned with what you have as what has you. You listen to what God is speaking to your heart. What is he saying? What is it that has your affections? What are you trying to find security apart from him? If there is something you aren't willing to freely give to Jesus at his request, it is probably an idol and something that possesses you and must be crushed. So sadly, the American dream has become the American nightmare for so many. We've diluted the gospel so completely that we've Christianized our covetousness. Wealth isn't for our consumption, friends, but for advancing the kingdom of God. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, let me, because I think pastor is going to preach on this in a couple of weeks. And if we disagree on any point, he's right. I'm wrong. Now, really, I just want to throw it a little different angle at you, okay? Because I, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I, I remember back in, I don't know, was it the 70s? Early 80s, maybe, there was this guy who had this big wooden cross, and he had a wheelie at the, on the bottom of the cross, and he was walking across America. Do you remember anybody? Someone say yes, even if you don't remember it. It's off of, I'm not making this up. No, there was this guy, and he was walking across America. I think he went all around the world, you know, and, and he saw this verse, and he just, like, picked up his cross, and he started going, man. 
And I was like, wow. But, you know, I had a, and have a lot of respect for him because he, maybe he got it wrong, but at least he was willing to give up everything and follow. But this is how I'm going to present it to you tonight. In the garden, before Jesus went to the cross, he had washed the feet of the disciples. He, had, he understood that Judas was going to betray him. Judas had gone out. He went to pray. And he set the apostles in groups and asked them to pray with him. And he went, and he went before the Lord. And, and basically, he, said, he came to the place where he said, talked about this cup. And he says, is there any way for this cup? And he used the figurative, this thing that he was, this experience that he was going to go through. Is there any way that, is there another way, Father? And, and at each point, in great distress, he said, yea, not my will, but yours. Do you remember, even as he went into this, he went to the Lord three times with this, the, his father, and, and he was perspiring blood. He was in such great distress. And yea, not my will, yours. You see, he finally, he came to the place where he saw that the will of his father, the divine will of the father was the cross. And he embraced it. And he took up the cross. He took up the will of his father as his best. And the scripture says, and whoever doth not bear his cross, whoever is not willing to go down and say, Lord, not my will, yours, just can't be my disciple. John 12, 43 says, For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, I'm not sure how you take what I've spoken about tonight and put it in a track. But I think we need to be honest with people what real discipleship is. What's got you distracted from the kingdom? Are you willing to come tonight to the place of unconditional surrender? Are you willing to take up his will, his purposes? Are you willing to love him more than any other? And here's the beautiful thing about it, friends. Because you might be saying, well, if I love Jesus this much, my husband might get mad. (laughs) My wife might get mad. Here's the reality. We can't really love anyone else the way they need to be loved until Jesus' love is flowing through us. And he's saying, will you let that love flow through me? So let me ask you, is Jesus prominent or preeminent? Now, I'm I'm pretty sure for most of you, he's, he's at least prominent. You're here on a Sunday night. There's no hot dogs or anything. But see, he didn't call us to prominence. He called us to live out his preeminence. Is his love for you and your love for him reflected in your life? Will you take up your cross and follow him? Father, I thank you so much for people that, it's, that are, are safe to be able to speak the truth to. It's not everywhere, I, I recognize, not everywhere where I could speak this kind of message. 
And I thank you for these people and the, and, and the long relationship we've had, almost three decades. I'm so grateful for that, for the support, the prayers, the encouragement. And, and I just pray that you give us another three decades just of faithfully partnering together for your kingdom. But I, I do ask, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of your beloved. Lord, that we would once again be overwhelmed by your incredible love for us. Lord, that we would look to the cross and be overwhelmed that when we were the enemies of God, you loved us. That you proved your love beyond any shadow of a doubt by going to the cross and becoming sin for us that we could be the righteousness of God in him. Maybe you're here tonight. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I don't want anyone to feel embarrassed or pressured, but would you listen to the Spirit of God? Are you here tonight and you've never put your trust in Jesus? You really never known or experienced the love of God, and tonight you say, Lord, I want to be a disciple. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to know that my sins are forgiven and that you live within me, that I might see you live through me. If you're here tonight, you don't know for sure that that Jesus is your Savior, your Lord, your life. Would you lift your hand and let me pray for you? I promise I won't embarrass you. I just want to be able to pray for you. You're not sure. Christians, has the Spirit of God convicted you in any way? Has he revealed to you that in any way he might be prominent and not preeminent in your life? Has he revealed to you anything that has a priority in your life? any way in which you're not experiencing his lordship, his reign over you? Now, can we do this tonight? Let's just do something different. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, there's an empty altar here. And if God has spoken to your heart and there's something that you need to leave, there's an idol in your life, there's, there's a love in your life. It might be self-love. It might be love for another person. It might be looking for security. It might be possessions. It may be you've just been giving Jesus the leftovers and you're going to le- leave that kind of living behind. The altar's open. I'm going to ask the pianos to play and if God has spoken in your heart, you come and take advantage of this altar. And we're just going to keep our, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. And if people need to make decisions today, would you take advantage of the altar tonight?